Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you all doing? I hope you made it through the holidays safely. You made it through 2017, most importantly. It was a year that I'm sure few of us will forget. A year of upheavals, disruption, destabilization, and daily frustration. A year where we questioned the road our country might be headed down. I wanted to turn the news feeds off, but I feared if I didn't stay tuned in, I might miss something important. I know the media was capitalizing on the moment, but it was pure insanity at times. The craziest part was that the facts, the words coming out of the mouth of our president and his representatives were just crazy. And they were crazy dangerous, pure lies many times. It truly seemed like we were on the verge of losing our basic freedoms, freedoms we had grown to believe were our birthright. And if you're a recent immigrant, I'm sure you felt the impact of this year in ways that the rest of us will take many years to understand. It was shocking that so much of what this country had fought to overcome since its inception from taking the land of Native Americans to slavery, to Jim Crow, women's rights, rights of immigrants, and most recently LGBTQ rights were being threatened. Were it not for our country's laws and legal system, 2018 could have been a drastically different year compared to anything before. Now, lawyers tend to get a bad rap. Like doctors or politicians, they hold a certain amount of power with their knowledge and influence. But they can also use this as a weapon for good. And that is why I had to have a conversation with this next guest. Ulysses Smith has dedicated his career to protecting our most basic human rights, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. In 2016, he was recognized as one of 10 worldwide UN Global Compact SDG pioneers by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. In 2017, he was appointed Special Advisor on Anti-Corruption and Global Governance to the UN Global Compact. His new organization, Telos Governance Advisors, believes rule of law, human rights, compliance, and corporate social responsibility are essential to economic and social well-being. In our conversation, he takes us back to his humble beginnings in Oklahoma, how he made his way from restaurant work to cab driving in Chicago, his love for poetry and need to write about his life experience, which led him to travel abroad and to a brief career in journalism. His story and his work, I think, really sparked something important that I think you can all relate to. There's just something incredibly inspiring in hearing uh, someone's passion, how, how they're being driven by by a sense of something. And in this case, it was it was justice. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Ulysses Smith. So I grew up uh, in the Midwest, uh, downstate Illinois, Oklahoma, sort of bounced around different places. My parents split up when I was very, very young, when I was three. And uh, my mom hadn't even finished high school. My dad did do some college, um, but definitely grew up in a place where education wasn't prioritized. Um, Definitely a place of kind of manual labor. And, you know, my mom worked in a, um, in a sort of clothing retail context for a very long time. Um, what'd your dad do? He was in and out of journalism Mm. for a while. So he was a radio guy, uh, in Chicago eventually. Um, but, but definitely, uh, coming out of a place that was, um, you know, an environment that didn't sort of support and value 
education yeah, in a way. And yeah. I think that was something that I saw early on as being, you know, important for, you know, my future and, and what I wanted to, to do with my life. And so there were some departures, I think, from the context that I grew up in. And I look back now and, and, and have some view into the places that I left Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, where I went to high school or <laughs> Washington, Oklahoma. Illinois, where I went to grade school. And, um, you know, a lot of those folks are people that, um, didn't leave and didn't radically change their, their life trajectories yeah. and have perfectly fine lives. But it, I look at my life now and I realize how different it is and yeah. how much, um, I've done in some ways to, to, to move away from that. When, when were you, when were you aware of that? thing that you, you you knew you must have known something that you had more to do you know that there was that there that you needed to break out of something probably around 13 um and the first manifestations of that were were things that at the time I had really no idea what was what was going on and it's only really in hindsight that I can kind of piece it together as part of this this path or this sort of move away from the life that I was sort of born into in some ways. Um, I think it manifested itself first by uh, exploring kind of the goth scene and (laughs) doing a deep dive with, you know, in music, the cure, uh, new order, joy division and those sorts of guys and curling my hair and, and, and dying it blonde, white blonde and that sort of thing. I found them a little bit later, but (laughs) yes, I understand clubs getting to 15 16 in oklahoma or in or in uh in illinois this is in oklahoma okay um yeah moving into sort of the 15 16 area really exploring drugs yeah yeah in a in a pretty deep rich intense life transforming way Mm -hmm. which was something that no one else that i was really connected with in broken arrow was anywhere near um doing so i was already i think in a in a in a pathway leading away from um whatever the norm and broken arrow was exactly um and then it was about uh leaving broken arrow and oklahoma for the city was chicago at the time yeah um how at what at what age that was just into early college so i graduated high school um started college in Oklahoma, left after one semester, dropped out, went to Europe for the first time. Mm. Um, that was also something that was a radical break. I, you know, my parents, <clears throat> my father has never left the United States, has never had a passport. My mom has left only, well, now she's she's left the States a few times. Um, but when I was growing up, she'd never left. Yeah. And the times that she did leave you know, in the last 20 years has been to visit me abroad um, until recently. And now she's actually with someone has a partner who is much more of a globally minded perspective. Yeah. And they were just in China recently and, and Hong Kong. And my mom's doing these things that I never would have ever dreamt that she would have done. But yeah. in some ways yeah. she's making that break from her milieu as well. in a kind of interesting way. It's such, a, it's such an incredible time period. I'm starting to talk to my kids about it now. Like, you know, a 14 year old who's really like, I'm basically telling him he has no choice that he has to go, you know, on his own to see 
somewhere else in the world or live in, in another yeah. culture. And, and, re, and because I, I think, I think what you realize when you get away from your, whatever your culture is, I mean, America is so many different cultures depending on where you are. I mean, I, I can sort of imagine broken arrow, but I can't, I, I mean, you know, I, there were places in Minnesota and Iowa where I grew up that I'm sure had bits and pieces of the same things, but every, every place has its own thing, yeah. but, you know, you, and it's, so you go to Europe and it's like flipping everything on its head. It's, I'm sure there are some of the same kinds of things, but it's just from such different place and the, and the history of the place and how that affects everything. It's just, it's, it's important to do. It, completely. And I think for me, it was not just arriving in Paris, which was the first sort of place I landed uh, abroad um, and it being a foreign place, but it was also the first like truly urban environment in the real sense of it. I'd never been to New York city before I'd been to Chicago a little bit, but in Chicago is obviously it's a big city, but it doesn't have urbanness the way that a city like New York does or Paris does yeah, or Hong yeah. Kong does the density and the energy and the vibrancy that you you find in those cities just doesn't really exist in the same way yeah. in Chicago. So for me, the, the kind of mind blowing experience with, with Paris was Paris and French and foreignness and mm-hmm. everything else, but also big city in a way that was exhilarating. It was the most transform one of the most transformative experiences of yeah. my life and i remember the you know the first morning on the in the taxi from the airport you know and just driving through the city and my face was just slammed up against the window and i just couldn't <laughs> believe what i was looking at it was so amazing um, i had the same experience going into england and it and the, the, one of the funny things that happened to me the i was in gatwick waiting to go through customs and <clears throat> I, was, I was standing at this in this in this long line and someone came up to me and said are you in queue and I thought, because my last name is Q, I thought, is this alphabetical? <laughs> no, Q, Q. Yes. It just like t- totally got let out of the box in, in some <laughs> foreign place for the first time. But clearly, it was like so obvious. Yeah. Well, my sort of funny, sad experience in a sort of similar way was um, when I went to Paris, I actually went to Paris to visit, um, well, what was my ex girlfriend but then becoming my girlfriend again she was a french exchange student uh who somehow god knows she went from paris to being posted in broken arrow oklahoma it seemed like the worst <laughs> most criminal posting for a for a french story exchange student. and and not only yeah she did she up in, in a broken arrow but she ended up actually with a family that was sort of hardcore christian uh fundamentalist speaking in tongues you know, not quite snake handling, but like yeah. just shy of snake handling. And here's this, you know, French urbanite, you know, cosmopolitan, wonderful 17 year old woman. And, and she ends up living on a farm uh, outside, not even, it was like outside of Broken, I mean, Broken Arrow was a suburb oh of Tulsa. It wasn't even Broken Arrow. It was like the sticks outside of Broken Arrow. Um, but my, my similar story was arriving from the airport at her house we had broken up, but we were getting back together, and um, and uh, I I had to go to the bathroom, and she pointed me to, um, you know, the bathroom, which had a bathtub yeah. and a bidet and a couple yeah. of sinks, but there was no toilet in it. And I couldn't understand what the <laughs> hell I was supposed to do, so I literally peed in the bidet. <laughs> <laughs> I would have, I would have done the same thing. 
Turns out that one room over was the water closet, yes. which is where the toilet was. But um, yeah, so I peed in the bidet. My first, <laughs> was my first, first act. It's sort of meant for stuff like that. <laughs> so, so, so you came. So, so, how long were you over in France for? So, on that my first trip, I was there for almost three months. Okay, I went for the summer. Uh, Agnes was her name. We had gotten back together. So, so that was just to travel. That wasn't for school or anything. Yeah. I dropped out of college. I did a semester of college. I dropped out because I just was completely unhappy with in, it. In I, Chicago? In Oklahoma. Oh, in Oklahoma. Okay. Completely unhappy with it. Just really miserable and struggling. And, and by this time, I was really struggling with being a writer and a poet and wanted to yeah. write poetry. And that was sort of what I was doing and, and felt completely oppressed by this soulless university environment at Oklahoma yeah. State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma, perfectly fine place. But yeah, it was not really where I was meant to be at that time. And so um, left after one semester, moved back in with my parents, was working different jobs, trying to make up some money, earn some money because I knew I was going to go to France that summer yeah. and spend the summer there. What did you, you do for jobs when you came back from France? At that point, I think I was waiting tables in a Mexican restaurant yeah. in Broken Arrow okay. called El Chico. <laughs> Um, Is it a chain? Like a two, like a two or three restaurant chain, a small chain, a local chain, local chain in Broken Arrow. Yeah, exactly. Really good Tex-Mex, though. I, I still, I miss it. I still crave it sometimes. Um, So I went in kind of late May to France, and the first month we spent uh, in Paris, and it was just incredible. Agnès took me all over the place, showed me the Louvre. Notre Dame, all the major sites, um, and just kind of experienced her life there um, and her friends who were all really interesting people and artists and, you know, her friends' parents were architects and things, you know, things that I, my parents' friends, well, my parents didn't really have friends and yeah. the friends that they did have weren't doing anything um, uh, very interesting to me at did you, all. Did, did you get her perspective on Broken Arrow when, when once you were over in France? <laughs> Yeah, and she was very touching in a way. She more, actually had a very more forgiving, more forgiving, and more like I had a really intense cultural experience, and I, you know, yeah. lived through it yeah. and was the stronger for it, which is really probably the right way to, to yeah. think oh, about yeah, for it. Sure. Um, if it had been reversed, I probably would have, I would have been angry, and I probably wouldn't have made it the full year. And she actually made it through the full yeah. year. But so, first month in Paris, second month with her and her parents. Uh, driving all over France. Her her dad was fantastic, was this kind of classic French gourmand guy, loved, you know, good French food and good French wine. And I think he thought that, I mean, I thought too, that I was going to probably marry this woman and that he was sort of grooming his future son-in-law to, to be not a stupid hick from Oklahoma. <laughs> he did ask me once whether, whether we, and he, I I really believe he meant this seriously. He asked whether we had uh, sellers in our houses in America for Coca-Cola, the way that, you know, that they French people wine. wine sellers. <laughs> um, oh my God. But he, so he took me to all these, you know, kind of Michelin two-star restaurants all over the countryside of France, the Loire Valley, castles, everything, just kind of trying to get his patrimony yeah. into my DNA as quickly as possible. Well, certainly going to ruin a kid from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> and it did. And now I, you know, have this 
taste for expensive wine that right. I can't afford and right. great cheese and, you know, all that stuff. And then the last month we spent um, in the south of France uh, on the Mediterranean, actually with one of Agnes's friends. Parents were the architects had built this amazing teepee that housed about 16 people with different rooms oh, and wow. bathrooms and things. But it was a teepee structure on the top of a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. You would sort of walk down the steps along the cliff to get to the little village below, but it was just this wide open field of like sage and thyme. And it was, it was beautiful. So huh. that was a, a very much a milestone, I think in my life. And, and it launched me off into, you know, I came back, went back to college again for about another year. Then I left to go to Europe for six months and I was in Europe, but also North Africa and Turkey and spent a lot of time in Turkey. And, and then in some ways the kind of, the sort of windows blew out and the doors blew open and the roof came up and I just became just completely fascinated with the world and sort yeah. of global issues and that sort of thing. And that was, and the writing was, was still on. going on this whole time. Writing was still going on the whole time. Um, still trying to write poetry, uh, wrote some really great poems, I think published some of them. Um, but you know, was writing and poetry was a very fraught experience for me. I struggled yeah. every Every syllable, every word, every comma was as if I was battling, you know. This is this is World one War thing III. you and I have in common, which is really funny that I <clears throat> I had a very similar experience. I mean, I, I got out of college. It was it was the nineties and there wasn't I I had I had applied for the first uh, masters of in education program uh with my BA in English. <clears throat> it's gonna be an English teacher, and then ended up taking a detour into my musical career, but that whole time, that whole first year, I just spent pen to, pen to paper, you know, just day after day after yeah. day. And I went to a writing school for a little while. And but it's but it, it's a it's a very solitary. It and actually I, I just don't think it, it played into my nature the the way I had kind of hoped for it to. I'm glad I did it. Yeah, I think it was. I think I think maybe a lot of people should have that experience. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of journaling, and I think there's something to be gotten out of like going through the experience again, reliving that it's, it's its own form of therapy, but it, it's also, I don't know, it just tunes you to what's really present in your life in a, in a way that other things don't. And, and, and poetry is the distilling of that, Yeah, you know? Yeah, but absolutely. I think, you know, for me, journaling was, and still is a really helpful thing for me to do to really sort of digest. And especially I think you know, now as a full on adult with kids and family and a lot of responsibilities beyond, um, beyond myself, you know, days, weeks can go by where I really haven't kind of digested what's going yeah, on in yeah. my inner life. And so the journal now is an experience in a time yeah. for me to be able to, to, to really catch up with what the hell's going on in my psychology and in my soul. Yeah. Um, you know, poetry and I, you know, journaling then was, was wonderful and, and came easily. But for me, you know, poetry was just this almost, you know, dark night of the soul kind of struggle, like with self-doubt and self-worth and, and ability and, and everything. And, you know, uh, I mean, it was uh, an important experience for me to, to go through. Um, and I continued with that for a number of years and through the rest of college. And I ended up, you know, when I came back from Europe and Turkey that time, I ended up, that's when I sort of moved from Oklahoma to Chicago 
and did a creative writing program at the University of Illinois in Chicago there. Um, and fully embraced kind of Chicago urban life, which was was wonderful. Um, were, were you planning for to to get a BA or something at that point? Then were you going to stick to it that time? Yeah, I think I'd sort of finally arrived in the moment in my life when I was ready for an institution and yeah. um, you know more structure and and a and a, and a path. Um, and so you know I kind of embarked on that, and I actually you know took it very seriously. And I what was your my, what was your major? It was creative writing. Okay. Yeah. It was uh, um, English creative writing. Yeah. There were some great poets there, and I was, you know, you know, working on poetry and um, working at a sushi bar at the time. I mean, I, you know, had to, I paid for, for college and, and ended up driving a taxi cab to kind of pay for this stuff. Oh, and so wow. I was doing a lot of different odds and end things, but, but, you know, was able to finish Also my... very writery of you, too. Yeah. <laughs> it was all about experience, experience. and limited oh, yeah. experience yeah. and... Yeah. And that sort of thing. And then, you know, long story short, I, I did graduate. I ended up um, working for a left politics news magazine in Chicago called In These Times, mm-hmm. which is a bit like The Nation, but it's a yeah, little yeah. scrappier. You might come across it. Chicago-based. And um, and essentially, my plan at that point was to kind of to pick up where I left off in southern Turkey. Pick, left off a couple of years <clears throat> before. And and to write for this news magazine from kind of the Middle East, I was very drawn mm. to that kind of East-West divide. This was in the late 90s, so it was sort of before yeah, yeah. 9-11. It yeah. was a more innocent time in some ways. Um, a more naive time, how about? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I had was driving the taxi, was working in the restaurant, saving up as much money as possible. I got like about $5,000 together, decided to... Sh- leave Chicago, start back in Turkey. And the plan was to travel through Syria and Yemen and around the Middle East into India. And I was going to write some freelance stuff for the magazine, but I was going to pick up with the poetry as well. Yeah. Um, And that was right at the exact time when Bill Clinton was in office and it looked like there might be a war, another war in Iraq after the Gulf War. And um, I ended up sort of, I had spent so much time in Turkey a couple years before that I decided to go to Greece, a place I'd never been before, just to kind of kill some time and see what was going to yeah. happen. And in the end, what happened was I met a Greek woman. I fell in love. So it's another sort of love, <laughs> yeah. another woman in my life, fell in love and um, decided to stay. Feeding, feeding your poetry. Feeding my poetry. Um, feeding my soul in this just magical place yeah. called Crete. Oh, you were in Crete. This island in the south, yeah. I spent two weeks in Kefalonia. Yeah, at at the time, apparently this was in the early '90s, but nothing was developed there yet. Yeah, I guess it's like you know, there's holiday ends and <laughs> no, but it was one of my friends just looked. We we got we landed on the island. One of my friends said, "I'm going to w- walk up this mountain and see if there's anything." <laughs> I see a couple of houses, and sure enough, this woman had a, some rooms to rent. Yeah, amazing. We spent two weeks there. Amazing. I think. <clears throat> And who knows now with the euro and everything that's going on in the EU, I think Greece has cycled back to a lot of earlier times. Um, when I, when you were there in the early 90s, when I was there in the later 90s, yeah, it was – you could hitchhike everywhere. Yeah, yeah. You could walk up to a door in the middle of nowhere, knock on the door, they would take you in. Yeah. Um, I taught English 
a year there and I had just these amazing and, and kind of the mountains sort of away from the big town, you know, and the kids would kind of, it would rain one day and they would collect snails because the snails would come out on a rainy day and they would give them to me and, you know, as if I could, knew how to cook them and, yeah. and it was just, just a beautiful, <clears throat> magical place. And then I think the EU came along and it changed the temperament of the place in some ways yeah. and it became more North Europeanized in some ways. So, but anyway, it was a, a wonderful time and yeah was with this amazing woman who was studying art history at the university there i was trying to you know continue with my poetry i traveled and lived off my five thousand dollars savings the first year amazing that you could do that we were paying fifty dollars a month in rent <laughs> between the two of us oh, so it was like 25 dollars a piece and then i ran out of money eventually and i taught english the second year so so when so when did you when did you get the so I'm, I'm going to guess that knowing your current story, that, that that relationship ended at some point. And was that the reason for leaving or coming yeah. back to the States? Or is, what, so you, you weren't finished with, with your college? I at, was finished you, at that you were time. Finished. Yeah. So what, when, did the, when did you get the bug to what, – what got you interested in law all of a sudden after all this? So there's a little, another mini chapter before the law yeah. comes along. You realize when you get to be, you know, 40 something, like there's a lot of chapters in your life and <laughs> yeah. you know, to tell the real story and to understand it, um, you know, take some unpacking. But I, you know, in a way I think, yeah, that relationship came to an end. Um, we were still friends. She actually recently passed away. Uh, um, sorry. She died of yeah, cancer earlier in the summer, um, which was... Yeah, quite a heavy blow. Yeah. Um, um, but that relationship had come kind of to an end, and I think my time in in Greece had come to an end, and I was just ready to to come home. And yeah. you know, I've been away for two years, and so coming home meant at that time coming back to Chicago. Mm. Um, and uh, what was and, it, what was in Chicago? What what drew you back to Chicago at that point? The city itself, the the friends that I had sort of developed while I was going to college there and kind of a little bit, you know, post college, um, the culture had become your surrogate family a little bit. Yeah. 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 It really had been, uh, it really had, and it felt, you know, like home and I loved the music scene. I loved the art scene. I loved the, the writing scene. It was really, it's a great city for incubation and sort of early stages of, you know, creative lives. Yeah. I think people tend to leave at some point in their creative life away from Chicago. But in those early years, it's a very exciting place. Yeah. Um, so I came back and I uh, ended up deciding that I wanted to channel sort of the writing into a journalism career. And I started working for the Chicago Reader, which was sort of the alt news weekly, mm. a bit long form New Yorker type local Chicago story journalism and um, and then a lot of you know music writing and and great you know art and theater reviews and that sort of thing. And so when I came back to Chicago, I started working there, and kind of um, thought I was on this path to being a professional writer, still writing poetry a little bit on the side, but starting to sort of move away from that um, part of my experience. And then, as trite as it is to say, nine eleven happened, and. This is after doing the journalism thing for for a couple of years, and it was 
as it probably is for many people. I don't know. It was um, it was a pretty significant turning point in my life in that moment, and and really just taking in everything that that meant. You know, of course, tragic loss of life. Of course, um, the path that our country sort of embarked on at that point. You know, yeah. You know, you know the think of the Robert Frost poem, you know, like going down two, two paths you could have gone down and the yeah, one you went down yeah. makes all the difference. The one we've gone down has made all the difference, right? But the thing that really was seared into my brain in a way was, and maybe it was as much about where I was in my own life and sort of growth and maturity and that sort of thing, but coming to realize in that moment that actually we are part of history. You know, we're living in a time. Yeah, we're in it. And, and we we don't even realize it sometimes. I, I had I had a very similar feeling to that because I was actually where we're doing this podcast right now. We're about a mile as the crow flies from the yeah, tower, true. where the towers were, and I <clears throat> I had lived you know right here, and it, as the ash from things sort of started to fall on my front stoop of my brownstone, realized just how I mean it. I could just it it was it it was all like so physical and real yeah 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 absolutely i was in chicago you know sitting on a couch watching it all on tv and i still at that point never no i had been to new york once actually um before that um but i think you know like a lot of americans and a lot of americans probably in their 20s and, and maybe even today um you know in some ways have this experience of living outside of history uh where the world and its kind of harshness doesn't really touch our lives. Yeah. We live in this right. sort of bubble yeah. of security and safety where all of our needs are basically met. Um, we may be unhappy, but it's this kind of like, meh, you know, self-indulgent kind <laughs> yeah. of unhappiness yeah. of like, meh, I don't like, you know, the way the sun's shining on me today. So yeah. I'm going to be unhappy and I'm going to gripe about it, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and so in that moment, I, I think, and it definitely ties back to the things that had drawn me to the Middle East a couple of years before that kind of got stunted because of, you know, the whole Clinton, Iraq, possibly yeah, going to yeah. war thing. And it cut me off there. But this, um, this tension between modernity and antiquity that, that sort of came to bear this, you know, whether you think about it as sort of East versus West or Islam versus what, I mean, I, I, those binary sort of yeah, structures, yeah. I think I, I, I don't really capture it. Clash of civilizations <laughs> yeah, was yeah. the way that Samuel Huntington talked about yeah. it. To me, it was more about uh, a vision of a modern kind of liberal order um, being challenged by an you know an old order that wanted to take precedence back and 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 supplant that in some ways that that was sort of the prison or whatever the collision that was happening in that moment but realizing that history is happening and that major things are going on in our lifetimes yeah it's not all this sort of comfort you know bourgeois uh you know easiness yeah. um but there's there's really a battle in a sense um for for the future that's taking place yeah. and obviously with trump and everything else that's happened in the last year or so that's you know come back and i think for maybe for the millennials, they're kind of experiencing a similar kind of yeah, moment. Yeah, I, I think so. But I realized that I didn't want to be a journalist because in my mind at that time, I thought of journalism as being something where you're an observer, a documenter, 
you write about things that happen in the world. Yeah. I wanted to be someone that was participating in like actually shaping events and really yeah. having an impact. And that led me to law and to actually human rights law. The Guantanamo Bay mm-hmm. happened and I, and I went into law school um, and wanting to sort of take on the law, using it as a tool, as a weapon in some ways to fight uh, for the cause of human rights and social justice and that sort of thing. And particularly, I wanted to do work around Guantanamo Bay litigation hmm. and sort of going up against our government and the human rights violations that our own government. And, and, did, and did you have a sense when you went into law school of of how you wanted to... I mean, the law is so vast in terms of how you can get involved in these things, but with your with your background in writing... Was that in in your mind? Where, 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 you know, where did you see yourself landing in this, in that world of law? It was really pretty pretty blind the way I went about yeah. it. Um, as somebody who not only didn't have anyone in my family who'd ever been a lawyer yeah. or gone to law school or even considered going to law school or even frankly going to university and completing yeah. a degree, yeah. um, the law was pretty much an unknown. No, that's, that's too strong. I mean, I had friends that had sort of made similar kind of decisions at different times, a couple different friends that had gone to law school. So I had a sense of what it was and I had a sense of what certain lawyers can do. What I, what I imagined doing, which is something that I sort of tried out doing um, early on after, you know, while in law school and after law school was actually litigation on behalf of detainees at Guantanamo Bay in different court systems and the the first sort of well the the major case that i uh worked on was um uh with something called the center for constitutional rights which is a a human rights litigation actually the the first non-military lawyers that went into guantanamo in 2002 um were were ccr lawyers and they led the whole very robust and very extensive litigation field of litigation that happened around guantanamo bay what, what is ccr it's the center for constitutional rights okay, so it's a okay. new york based gotcha. ngo legal ngo okay that basically it's sort of like i mean you've heard of well the aclu right for example is another organization that and, does. And, and for people who don't know what ngo means these are all your common terms but yeah <laughs> just do it right. <clears throat> we to explain that so NGO stands for non-governmental organization, but okay. it, basically what it is is it's 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 an organization that for the most part is built with the mission to 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 achieve social goods, but it is not part of the government. It's independent of government. Okay. okay. Um, and so you know in that space, um, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, CCR, the Center for Constitutional Rights, Human Rights Watch is another really well known. Yeah. NGO, um, and they have different sort of missions and focal points and things. They're independent of the government, but they are really about creating kind of social goods. And CCR was about litigating, using using the tool of the law to fight cases in courts for social ends. So that could be on behalf of asylum seekers. It could be on behalf of, you know, transgender. You know, they have a lot of different... Gotcha. streams of activity but one of them one of the big ones was around the guantanamo uh detainees i mean i I think it's interesting to think about the idea of just starting a i mean 
basically conceptualizing this idea of something that you want to do and then trying to find that as a career. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's it's almost, I mean, I've, I almost feel like we should do more of that rather than trying to fit into a, a pre-existing box. I've, and I feel like that's kind of what, you know, I've, I've known you now for maybe 10 years, something. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I feel like you've you've kind of like, you know, whittled away things down to the point that you're doing exactly what you want to be doing now. <laughs> much more of like, much closer to what that aim was because there's part of your job that is, is you know, financially driven. You just need to make ends meet while you're starting a family and different kinds of things. But it gets to a certain point where it also is about the work. It also is about what's fulfilling you. And I feel like you've kind of, you've kind of hit on it through lots of uh, ups and downs and turbulence, but to, how how did uh, how so how did you go from there into in, in, where did your career start with all of this? So in the the governance realm, and and I think it's it's really true. You know, I just as a quick aside, I mean, I think about um, you know the, sort of the path, and you know, we started back when I was thirteen as a whole long journey or whatever, um, and that was definitely the quick version of the, yeah. the story. That you know, so many turns and twists and, 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 and transformations. And, you know, and I think about, you know, other career paths that people have and sort of not it's career path is actually demeans it in some ways. I think life trajectories, you know, I think about like a baseball player, for example, right. and the baseball player who's now 40 years old, that was the first thing that that guy wanted to be as a kid. Like it yeah. was for me. I yeah. wanted to be a baseball player when I was three years old. He happened to do it. And then he happened to do that one thing for his whole life. Yeah. And I think about all the diversions of me that I've had since I was three. It's yeah. it's crazy. And But in a way, they've all become part. I mean, you're, the writing is part of what you do now. The they, they all start to kind of like work in together. It's true. It's true. I, I, I mean, it, part of it is a process of whittling down. But it's more than that. I think it's an assimilation process. And I think... You know, one of the interesting things from an existential point of view about all this is just how you, how you, how you assimilate all your previous selves yeah, in yeah. life, and 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 how that you are now in this moment, the quintessence of all those things is completely fascinating yeah. to me. But how I so you know I went to law school. I uh, thought I was going to do human rights law, uh, focused on the Guantanamo litigation. I actually um, with a couple law student friends co-created a, a student group called the, I went to Cornell Law School, uh, started the Cornell Advocates for Human Rights. So it was a first sort of student organization at Cornell Law focused on human rights okay. uh, advocacy. And <clears throat> the first thing that we did was brought in a Guantanamo Bay lawyer from the Center for Constitutional Rights to lead a uh, clinic, sort of like you know, a practicum sort of thing where law students in their third year of law school can actually do real law work um, with a sponsoring organization. And so I had a Guantanamo case that I started in law school. And I happened to take that Guantanamo case with me when I started my career at my law firm. And uh, that was the path I was on. And I had sort of imagined that I would probably do that for a couple of years. And then I would leave the law firm having paid down some debt and having gotten some good training and done all that sort of stuff that, you know, lawyers who think they're going to just spend a little time at a law firm and then go on and do something else tend yeah. to tend to tend to have as their plan. Um, and then I was, you know, going to go work for one of these organizations and I was going to be, yeah, a human rights lawyer. That was sort of the vision. But went through that experience and 
uh, ended up in a situation in kind of late 2008 where the culmination of that whole experience after we had written this, you know, investigated and written this incredible legal brief of about 125 pages that documented all of the torture and abuse that our client had experienced at the hands of the U.S. government in Guantanamo, which was horrific stuff. And this was in sort of 08. So at that time, that was kind of new information. I mean, it wasn't that we weren't hearing about what was really going on at Guantanamo. And yeah. It wasn't other, there weren't other lawyers and other cases that weren't documenting this stuff, but it was still early enough in that moment when, first of all, it was a bit controversial for law firm, big corporate law firm with big corporate clients to get involved in that kind of stuff. Oh, is that right? Was, um, wasn't the only one by any stretch. Wasn't the first one, but the law firm I was at was, you know, an early entrant into that yeah. to its credit, I think. Who did you, who were you with then? Uh, Linklater's. That, that was with Linklater's. Okay. Some, yeah. Um, global law firm that's headquartered in London, but has a kind of global footprint. And um, so ended up in 2008 in the uh, Inter-American Commission for Human Rights. So it's a, uh, it's a sort of separate human rights tribunal that has jurisdiction over the Americas, both sort of North, South, and Central. Mm. And uh, a series of you know, judges that can issue decisions that are advisory most of the time uh, for, you know, domestic governments and sort of nation states. They're not typically binding. You know, they can't really tell the U.S., for example, what to do. Um, but they have sort of moral suasion and, and, and kind of moral uh, force. So this was late 2008. Obama had just been elected, uh, something that I worked very actively on trying to you know get him there as a as a great Obama supporter and someone from Chicago going yeah, back and yeah. knowing of Obama in Illinois, um, um, and the judge in the tribunal after we'd sort of laid out our case <clears throat> said that um, that that they were not going to take jurisdiction over the case because Barack Obama has just been elected. Barack Obama has promised to close down Guantanamo Bay and give the detainees there. Uh, their day in court in the U.S. Uh, court system, and therefore I am not going to entertain uh, your case. And it was so profoundly, I mean, think about it for me, I, yeah. I think about it for my client, who is still there, actually. <clears throat> this is a guy who now, nine years later, after we went through that whole experience, for example, is still uh, at Gitmo. Um, so let's, you know, do justice where it's deserved. I mean, that that his life is irrevocably, you know, damaged by this whole experience and by the actions of our government. And there's no ever getting away from that. Um, for me, in my personal life, it was it was a real moment of realization that actually maybe that kind of litigation, maybe that kind of human rights litigation was not really where I wanted to be um, because it just was flabbergasting to me that you could do all this work and go through all this yeah. process and have yeah. such a, a case. Yeah that's so clear cut uh, and then have no justice really done. It was, it was sort of the end of the line for me with that. But you, (laughs) but you, you, you moved, you pushed on and I mean, somehow you, you you kind of got brought into more, more of that work with, with link letters, right? Exactly. Well, it was not so much the human rights stuff anymore. I was moving Uh, away from human rights then into, into governance, which is where yeah, so, I'm at now, and, and and what what I really want to kind of focus on with you too, and it, so it, 
what's how do you define governance to the layperson? It's both incredibly simple and, and incredibly complex, and and I think one of the challenges uh, of being someone who you know, thinks a lot about governance and talks a lot about governance and tries to get people to give a shit about governance yeah. is um, helping people understand, you know, what it really is and that it's not something to be afraid of. So in a very basic level, um, you know, governance is essentially the kind of principles and processes and systems that we have in place to kind of govern ourselves as societies in our society. It's sort of like a constitution. It's it's a basic set of principles around our government that we have sort of separation of powers and we have you know co-equal branches of government we have mm-hmm. a, a media that is a check on that that power of government um, etc um, and it's founded on things like all men are created equal as a set of principles so that's that's governance at a kind of macro level so so, so would, would the constitution be considered part of governance sure yeah but then there's the, then there's a the, a broader scope of this when we get into like you know our our relationships with other countries and things right sure and even down to the level <clears throat> of um, intra like organizational governance which is something that I do mm. you know a fair bit of work on and that is sort of working with a particular business or NGO or it could be the United Nations uh, you know helping them kind of think about how they govern themselves and how, um, you know, in this, in, in this moment, you know, a lot of the focus is on, um, you know, not so much how, you know, the board works and, and, you know, what the rules are that govern the board, but it's more about, you know, uh, for me, it's about really helping organizations broadly, but let's focus on business specifically for a second, figure out how you do business in a very different world in the 21st century than what existed before. You know, you know, to be a business nowadays is to do business in an environment of globalization, of social media. Um, it's very hard to uh, do business behind the scenes um, without information kind of coming out and and having. Um, you know, a huge impact on your ability to operate in certain places. If yeah. you are a really horrible oil company and you decide to dump a bunch of oil in a river in Nigeria, or you're going to um, abuse the human rights of uh, a local population because um, you want to kick them out of your gold mine, or if you, um, you know, want to turn your eyes away from the fact that you know, the company that provides your raw materials, you know, you're a car manufacturer, the company that provides your raw materials to go into your electric batteries has children working for them um, as a violation of uh, their human rights and, yeah. and, and certain laws, that you can't really behave that way and still expect to get away with it. Because what will happen is someone that lives in that place in Nigeria will fire off a tweet that will shoot around the world and... Uh, become known to your shareholders and everybody else, and it will have yeah. a huge impact on the value of your company. You know, you look at Volkswagen and what they try to d- get away right, with, right. the emissions scandal and, yep. and the impact that that had on the value of that company and its ability to operate. So so when it comes to these uh, environmental and human rights uh, and health issues, how how do you how do you intervene uh, using your skill set with governance? So... A lot of times, 
the businesses that I'm working with because of the way I've kind of positioned my, my, my role and, and, and where I want to start with a company yeah. tends to be with those that either have their basic shit together and, and want to do good in the world and want to behave in a, in a sort of proactive forward looking way. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or a company that, that maybe aren't there yet in terms of that trajectory, but want to get there. Uh, there are obviously other people, other lawyers that, that sort of deal with the messes when the governance processes break down. Yeah. Um, there are lawyers that investigate businesses when those governance processes break down. So if there's a corruption scandal or something, there, yeah. you know, a lawyer that can come in and do an internal investigation. Are you, you had, one you were dealing with had, had some accounting issues or something, which, you know, they, if I remember right, they, they were going to lose funding. It was a nonprofit of some sort, yeah. right? Yeah. And what happened? I mean, was it, wasn't it like a, a, a human trafficking yeah. situation? And, yeah. and, and it would be sad and, and sad to, you know, I, what, I don't know what, whatever happened with that case. So amazingly, it, it, this doesn't happen that often. It, it sort of went away, oh. um, which in some ways was probably the best we could have hoped for. That was a, that was, that was a situation where I was involved in that point, And I've definitely done that work around investigations and kind of, dealing with the mess when the mess happens. Um, uh, you know, it's not exactly sort of the focus of Telos and kind of what my governance outfit is now, which is right. a bit more forward looking and it's more yeah. about championing good governance. Yeah. And it's really trying to. Rather than going up and fixing the messes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the right project came along, I would be open to doing that. But right. really what I want to do is I want, as I said, I kind of want to help organizations, uh, operate in a sort of sustainable, um, holistic way that is really workable, you know, yeah. for the future. That's sort of where the vision for what, you know, what Telos is about and championing good governance and helping governments understand that, you know, it's in all of our interests to, to, to behave well in a, in a well-governed way. In that case, it was a situation where they, it, I mean, it's really it's such an unfortunate story where all are concerned because, it was an organization, and I won't get into the specifics, but a human trafficking organization that was terrific, visionary, driven by vision, saving lives in a major way yeah. out of human trafficking channels. Just some of the most horrendous stories you can imagine. Um, that was sort of operating in a foreign country in a scrappy way, doing perfectly well with the limited funding that they were getting from, you know, private donors and, you know, rich foundations and that sort of thing. Yeah. And one of the big donor agencies, government donor agencies came along and said, wow, you guys are fantastic and we want to support you. And oh, here, here's $5 million. We're not going to do anything to help you understand how you manage $5 million, right. even <laughs> though you're used to dealing with $500,000 year budgets, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and in fact, not only that, but we're going to tell you that mm, go do your thing and, you know, you're not going to be subject to annual audits. We're not going to really um, put you through the paces because, you know, the amount that we're giving you kind of falls just below the threshold that would require mandatory audits. Yeah. But in the fine print, it says, but we always have the right to audit you uh -huh. somewhere down the road. So what ended up happening with this organization was it 
kept doing things the way it always did, which was not really keeping good books and not yeah. really feeling like they had to. They were focused on saving lives. They weren't, yeah. you know, back in the office. I mean, I was with these people. They're not back mm-hmm. in the office, like doing the books and the records and all this stuff. They're actually out, you know, on the boats, pulling girls out of, literally pulling girls out of, um, you know, jail cells oh, in these in these ships. Um, but so what ended up happening is five years goes by, they enjoy the $5 million, they scale up, they actually get quite a few awards and all that stuff. And after five years, the donor agency comes along and says, oh, you know what, we want to do an audit over the last mm-hmm. five years. And they panicked because they had nothing. They had yeah. nothing. Yeah. And then they made some stupid decisions like doctoring. Yeah, they got scared. Documents to yeah. try to create the trail, like backfill the trail. And so we helped them and, you know, we did the best we could, but the facts were the facts. Um, And to be honest with you, uh, time went by and more time went by and more time went by. And I tend to think that some political pressure was put on the donor agency to drop Mm. the case and, and they just eventually went away. Yeah. But that was a multiple year process. So, so actually the reason why we got involved with that project in the first place was not because we thought we were going to deal with the investigation and helping deal with the government agency. We thought we were being hired to come on board to say, okay, you screwed up. What are the systems and processes from a governance perspective that you need to put in place in geo? So this problem never happens again. And so, you know, that's the kind of advisory forward looking stuff that I'm about with Telos and was about then. Um, as opposed to kind of post mess, you know, clean up, find out what happened, that sort of thing. So, so who's who's an ideal sort of you know client for you now? What do you what, what is it? What is it? I mean, given your your interest in human human rights in the past, and you know, knowing knowing you know your your need to see some sort of sustainability in in organizations in terms of human rights and health and and that kind of stuff. What, who, who are you kind of looking for now? So I think the governance space has a lot of different participants in it. And, you know, there's, uh, for me, for where my interests are right now, and I think that I'm, you know, as I've, we've sort of talked about, you know, things have evolved intact and changed yeah. over time a bunch and I don't I don't expect that to to stop and that I've sort of finally arrived at the thing that I really right. want to do. But what I think what I feel very excited about and what, you know, where my energies really um I think can best come to bear at this point um is looking at sort of the broad governance landscape in at the global level. Mm-hmm. How do we as a global society deal with global challenges yeah. like climate change, um like the refugee cl- crisis? Clearly we're failing from a global governance perspective um, at dealing with that. And, you know, there are certain things about it that, you know, there are structures, governance structures that impede it. And without getting like, you know, too bogged down in the details, you know, the main forum for climate change, let's say, or let's say Syria, you know, is the United Nations and it's the UN Security Council. And the way the UN Security Council is set up is that there are five members that are permanently part of the Security Council that have veto power and so any action that anyone wants to take at a global level only needs one government, whether it's the U.S. or China or Russia or France or the U.K., but they don't tend to exercise their veto, mm-hmm. to, to, to thwart our ability to address a global crisis such as Syria. Yeah. 
Um, we also now have a government in our own gun, our own government, which, you know, is set out and dead set on undermining kind of the global governance kind of framework, whether it's last week they pulled out of the um, UN Economic and Social Council, yeah. um, you know, on and on and on, the Paris Climate Agreement, that sort of thing. Um, there's also, you know, poor governance in the sense of corruption and lack of rule of law and when it comes to commerce or when it's it... when it comes to commerce but also when it comes to sort of society at large and that is you know corruption between businesses it's corruption between you know government at the government and business um, it's uh, you know a bribe paid to you know get a certain uh, oil license to do, you know, oil extraction in, in Nigeria, for example, or it could be about tax evasion and, and being able to put profits offshore, um, to avoid taxation, which is essentially robbing very important dollars from very poor societies that could otherwise use those dollars to yeah. pay for school and roads and that sort of thing. So, so, so in terms of governance, where, how do you enter that arena? So that's, so the, so that, that stuff has existed for quite a long time yeah, and yeah. we've known that for a long time. And there are a lot of people that are sort of focusing on it, good NGOs, good, okay. whatever. And I think many people, I mean, it's statistics on these things are, are tricky. It's hard to measure corruption. Yeah. yeah. But by and large, I think the people that, that really focus on measuring this stuff, what they would say is that overall, the level of corruption, despite all of our work in fighting this stuff for the last 20 or 30 years, hasn't really gone down. Right. It's roughly yeah. a trillion to $2 trillion a year that gets lost mm-hmm. of global gross domestic product that gets lost to corruption every year. That number is not that different than it was. If anything, it's gotten worse huh. uh, than it was 20 years ago. Um, now there are good stories. You can look at certain countries, Singapore, for example, or South Korea, you know, there are examples where actually progress has been made on these things. So what I'm focused on and excited about and where I come into it now is that I feel like one major participant in all of this that has been really sitting on the sidelines of this discussion for a long time and hasn't gotten directly involved is the business community. Yeah. And so where does Telos fit in? Where does my work fit in? In some ways, what I'm trying to do through straight up advocacy and championing and and writing and saying, you know, get off your butts and get in there and and work on these issues. You have as big an interest as anybody in improving yeah. the governance yeah. landscape. Um, I mean, just to give you just very one kind of concrete example, because yeah. I, I, you know, discussions of governance often get lost at the kind of abstract policy level. But yeah. here's something very tangible. So Tesla wants to make electric cars, right? Yeah. So do many others. Um, a key ingredient in, 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 in batteries f- that can be designed at the scale with the power uh, that's necessary to power an, an electric vehicle is cobalt. Okay. Cobalt, about 90% of the world's cobalt resources exist in a country called the Democratic, Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC. Yeah. One of the most corrupt, one of the most poorly governed countries in the world. It is in Tesla's interest because basically if they want to get cobalt out of yeah, got it. DRC, yeah. they got to deal with the governance issues because it's distorting things. The quality of their cobalt may be tampered with. Yeah. It may be that they actually get screwed around with at, you know, customs. It may be that they have to, they're asked to pay a bribe to get the access to the cobalt that they need for their batteries. 
So it's in Tesla's interest in that case to really work and intervene and put the pressure and the power that it ha- it can bring to bear. And it has a lot. Yeah, yeah. Business has a lot to help improve the governance landscape there. And so part of what I'm trying to do with tes- uh, Tesla, <laughs> Telos, yeah. um, is Tesla, to help. Call us. <laughs> <laughs> please do, Tesla, please. Um, uh, is to help businesses connect the dots, see what is frankly, I think, right before their eyes, even if they're not looking yeah. at it, they don't want to yeah. look at it, that, that it's in their interest to do it, that they actually have power to to, to bear, um, to impact the governance environment and the jurisdictions where they operate. And, you know, what are those things? I mean, it's it's things like it's things like that. It's things like collective action and getting all the businesses together that that rely on, on cobalt for electric batteries and say, look, we're not going to pay bribes. As a group, we are committing to not paying bribes. Yeah. To get our cobalt. And if we don't do it, then the government of the DRC is not going to be able to solicit bribes because we are the, they're, we're their customers. And if we don't, if we yeah. all agree not to pay bribes. And, and, it, and it's, and it, it becomes something that you can now track from the government level. I mean, or from the, you know, commerce level to, to the DRC that, you know, where money is, is going and you can, and now you can say, this is where it's going. It's it's not going into some underground coffer through this, you know, through this company. But the, you know, and 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 I see now. I, I see exactly what you're saying. There's I mean, there's so many. I, I can think of so many other examples now of of you know people who could and and I, and I think people are starting to want this transparency in business too. I think we're kind of all fed up with the fact that money is not flowing where it's supposed to be flowing. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a moment where i mean it's it's it i think of that it's a societal change and it's a global societal change and i think you know to wax philosophical for just a second i mean i think it has to do with the basic fact that um you know we globally actually are less poor and less driven by poverty and less driven by scarcity than we were 15 20 30 years ago yeah i think the more you have societies that have more sort of middle class and kind of, you know, basic resources met, the more the basic fact is that people won't put up with this crap. Yeah. Um, partly it's, uh, so I think it's partly the rise of kind of a global middle class in a way that sort of like is part of our own, our, the society of our own story. I mean, yeah. our society, yeah. we, we had corruption in our country. I mean, not that we don't still have corruption, yeah. but I mean, not at the level of a Nigeria, let's just say. Yeah. Um, but we had that at one point, and 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 basically we got to a point where the society as a whole wouldn't tolerate it. We had some pretty enlightened leaders that that sort of harnessed that, and and you know the corruption at that scale was sort of dealt with. And I think more and more, you know, you just look around the world at the protests that are happening in Brazil and Guatemala and Hong Kong, and you know, you name it, right? China yeah, yeah. has its own sort yeah. of anti-corruption. You know, so Russia, Russia, there's. A lot that's happening where where we're not where societies just aren't putting up with it. Yeah. There's also the things that we were talking about before um, around transparency and just the tools and technologies of transparency where um, you know you can't engage in bad behavior in that Niger Nigeria Delta situation yeah. and think that you're going to get away with it. There's whistleblowers, but also I think maybe this is just wishful thinking, but I think there is generational change happening where. People younger than us, the millennial cohort, actually care about, you know, 
whether their their cotton t-shirt was made with child labor or slave labor yeah. they want to know about that yeah. stuff yeah. um they want to know actually if they're they have a 401k in their in their job they want to know if the 401k has uh stocks uh from some gun manufacturer right, right? Yeah. i mean it's a more progressive outlook i think and so for all these reasons i think you know there's pressure on businesses to be more aware about things like human rights impact governance impact etc on 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 the countries where they operate so so uh if, if we can get to the topic of health to uh, maybe <laughs> close this out what do you what do you what do you know at this point um in terms of where things are going with governance in in that realm and pick pick any anything you want to whether it's uh us or what you know anything that you've seen so far yeah it's not something that i've had enough of an opportunity to really to, to focus on, but I think there are, you know, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, as, as you were saying before, there's so much, it's so rich, the governance space. And so, you yeah. know, in, in so many different areas that you could look at. And I think that's true. I mean, I, I, I can, I can well. look at it. I mean, very simply as you can take your example with, with, you know, democratic Republic of Congo and, and say, if, if that money's not flowing into a, a a trackable, you know, place in the country, then all those people are losing out, you know, from a health perspective, that's, it's clear as can be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about intersections at so many different levels, you know, one of them is just around basic kind of evidence-based kind of decision-making around healthcare and making sure that our doctors have uh, all the information about who we are in our past and, 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 you know, I mean, how hard it is, you know, the, the cliche complain about just having to fill out these stupid paperwork forms yeah. every time we see a new doctor and like, really, this is how we are doing healthcare. And, and, and I, I think, and, and the fact that we're paying for all this, all, all the, you know, all the data that gets tracked, whether it's your, you know, your charts, your scans and any, any sort of labs that you get done, we should actually own that. Yeah. We, should, we should we should have like instant access to that at any moment, yeah. and not have to be calling around to every clinic that you've ever been to trying, to trying to get this information back. Yeah, it's absurd that it works that way. I also think you know at the more kind of macro level, um, you know whether you look at just the politics of of healthcare in our country and Obamacare and everything that you know the Trump administration has done and the Republicans have done, you know so many attempts to to kill the Affordable Care Act uh, to the point where and failing and failing and failing and failing and failing to the point where, you know, you know, the move is like uh, Trump in an executive order in the most cynical play possible of just trying to, you know, undercut it, make it painful, like stop the payments or, you know, like the yeah. most like ugly, dirty play when clearly people want this. The reason why the, the efforts to keep killing it fail is because actually our right. society really does want this. Um, and that doesn't even get to the, the, the basic, I mean, from my point of view, the absurdity of, of the way that we run healthcare in our country yeah. as at all. I mean, I, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on like a single payer model. To me, that just seems so sensible in so many ways. I mean, you know what these insurance companies that, and you know that just extract billions of dollars out of this when they don't seem to i don't really know what value they add is sort of sitting between us consumer and doctor provider yeah 
you know, why does this layer of the cake, which doesn't really add a lot of value, extract so much value? It's, I don't really understand. Yeah, and, and it's at, at this point, I mean, if you the, the way that I kind of think about insurance, you know, the, really, you know, it's it's they've become the directors of our care. You know, if, if you if, and if this may be a governance issue, I don't, I don't know. But if you think about that, if, if let's say I, I have uh, I, I tear my Achilles tendon and I'm walking funny for, you know, six months as part of my wearing the boot and rehabbing myself this is a very common scenario. Everyone, everyone sees somebody with a boot at some point <laughs> every few months. And now now that person has their, their, their opposite side hip because they haven't been able to walk on that leg hurts. Well, now a physical therapist can't address that hip because the, the director is saying, the the approval is for this is for this foot. Now you can go through a whole process and say, you know, you know, spend the money on an MRI to say, well, yeah, it looks like there's some inflammation in that hip or there's some there's some deterioration, mm. you know, whatever. It's just clear as day from from an orthopedic standpoint and from somebody who works on on people's bodies day to day that you should be addressing both at the same time to prevent further damage now going up into their lower spine and yeah. into the opposite side shoulder. And this is the way that the body is going to organize itself when there's, when there's an imbalance. And, and you could take this into any scenario in health and, and any doctor can probably tell you that if you have X problem and that you're going to have Y problem if, they don't, if you don't start treating both sort of you know, at the same time. But that is not, that's not what the, the, uh, the insurance company will do. I mean that that or or if you try that you might get no no money back or you just fudge the whole thing and which is what some people have to do and yeah. it, it, there needs to be some kind of governance I think in this situation that kind of steps in and says something. Yeah, I completely agree. And a, a different example, but similar. I think uh, ultimate point you know experience I had about a little more than a year ago where I uh, fainted. Um, it turns out out of, because of dehydration, I'd just gotten back from a two week trip to Australia and Sri Lanka. And I just it was completely jet lagged, dehydrated, wiped out. Yeah, and I, and I, I fainted and I cracked my head and, um, an ambulance came and, and, and took me, you know, to the ER, um, because I was having sort of chest, uh, palpitations as well. And, and, and breathing and, and, you know, it turns out it was dehydration, but at the time it it didn't. It seemed like it could have been a mini stroke. It could have been yeah. uh, whatever. And it, I couldn't believe that I was sitting in the ER, and of course they triaged me and they kind of got me calm, and I was you know I was I was decently okay. Um, but there came a time when I was in the ER and I hadn't been in the ER that long, and they want to admit me. And what do I have to do? I have to call my insurance company from the ER, from the gurney in the ER to get permission from the insurance company yeah. to be admitted. I mean, how is that sane, let yeah. alone, you know, the right yeah. way to way to go about things? Humane. I mean, this this is and and I and it's just just because I, I work so closely with different doctors, I, I'm I'm outside of the healthcare system, partly because I probably would have been involved in it earlier on had there been coding for a new kind of therapy that I got involved in back in the late nineties, but I'm kind of glad that I, I don't have to, but also, unfortunately people can't sometimes have access to my kind of care because I'm not within a network, you know, but, but so many doctors that I talk to want to see this change, you know, and, and there's, and, and I, you know, I, I do think 
part of this you know podcast is to to push up against this a little bit and, and start asking questions about why is this not happening yeah. and, and and why is there not better governance around this yeah absolutely i mean i think you know it's maybe too trite but to but i think one reason why is just the stakeholder interest groups things that's the politics of healthcare in our country that's yeah. just so dysfunctional it's, it's 20 of it's whack. 20% of our gdp and we have the worst outcomes of you know any of the oecd you know developing countries or something close to that i don't yeah. you probably yeah. know the statistics better than me yeah. but we pay vastly more than anybody else does and we get so much less yeah. for the money than anybody else does and i think it's because of um, I mean, I think it's because of the fact that, yeah, lobbyists have our and, and the interest groups have our politics paralyzed. And um, and, you know, the the those intermediaries, the managers of our healthcare that don't really actually add that much value, don't have that much capability, I think, uh, are just pulling so much value out of the system and keeping it amongst themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So and but I would be uh, happy to take on some governance work in this space. Cause I do think it's, it's a place where there's so many different intersections, both at the micro level, at the macro level and everywhere in between. Um, and it's something that I, th I think, I mean, it's fantastic, you know, the work that you're doing and, and um, think that governance actually is, is quite a critical issue. Well, I, I, I hope someone does bring you into that realm because I believe in you and the work that you do mm -hmm. too. So Thanks. this has been great, man. Thank you so much for coming on here and having a conversation with me. Pleasure. Ulysses Smith, folks. Really proud of that guy. He's been a good friend, and uh, I have even more respect for him after hearing this story. I, haven't, I didn't even, a lot of things in there I didn't even know. I've gotten to see his struggle over the last 10 years as his friend and, and a health guide as well. And I've seen the struggles he's been dealing with just being part of a corporate structure of law, and uh, I'm glad to see him finally getting some recognition for his work. What I admire most about him is his vision and persistence. He's been a real motivational figure in my life. Just seeing him, he's a reminder that we can all do something to make a difference. He's literally improving the well-being of individuals who, without governance, would be the sad byproduct of what greed produces. If you want to learn more about governance or Telos, check out telosgovernance.com. Thanks so much for continuing to tune in. I'm a couple weeks away from launching the Highway to Health website. It's going to be a really fun place to explore. I'm starting to take submissions for that blog, and we'll be connected to the podcast. My vision for the, the whole thing is that I want it to be a resource site, but also a place to come and explore thought-provoking material, daily inspiration, health hacks, ways to uh, get in, more involved in your communities, and learn simple ways to improve the environment around you and protect our natural world. And we'll throw some humor in there just, just to make it a little lighter. Uh, a much underappreciated uh, part of staying healthy in my books. One of my New Year's resolutions is to laugh at myself more. I tend to get a bit serious and uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of material uh, that I'll share with you from uh, what I'm finding. If you have anything uh, you'd like to share on the blog, send it directly to me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be kind to yourself. Take care of each other and protect your planet. Be well, my friends.